Black Op Radio presents The Prearranged Murder of J.D. Tippett by John Armstrong. Warren Commission Attorney David Bellin called the Tippett murder the Rosetta Stone of the Kennedy assassination. A Rosetta Stone is defined as a key to some previously undecipherable mystery. While the Kennedy assassination has been an undecipherable mystery for the past 60 years, the Tippett murder will not unlock all of the mysteries of the Kennedy assassination. The Tippett murder does, however, show us there were two men resembling Lee Harvey Oswald, two wallets, two sets of identification, two arrests made in the Texas theater, and two murders which resulted in one man, Harvey Oswald, being charged with the murder of both Tippett and President Kennedy. A careful analysis of the Tippett murder will allow us to identify certain members of the Dallas police who were corrupt and identify evidence that was created, evidence that was manipulated, evidence that was destroyed, and understand how and why Harvey Oswald was framed to take the blame for murdering Tippett. This pattern of corruption, cover-up, manipulation, and destruction of evidence by the Dallas police in the Tippett murder can help us decipher and understand a similar pattern of corruption, cover-up, manipulation, and destruction of evidence by the FBI and CIA in the assassination of President Kennedy. The Tippett murder clearly demonstrates that Harvey Oswald was framed by the Dallas police for the Tippett murder. The assassination of President Kennedy by a Russian-speaking Lee Harvey Oswald, a communist sympathizer, a defector to the Soviet Union, and a supporter of Castro in Cuba, who was set up and framed for the assassination of President Kennedy by the FBI and CIA, made him the perfect patsy. Understanding the two Oswalds in the Tippett murder may indeed be the Rosetta Stone that allows us to see through the smoke and mirrors of the president's murder and subsequent cover-up that has persisted for 60 years. The Warren Commission version reads differently than this essay. After President Kennedy was shot, the Warren Commission tells us that Harvey Oswald left the book depository by way of the loading dock at the rear of the building. He then walked east on Elm, pounded on the door of the Marcellus bus while the bus was stopped in traffic. The bus driver, Cecil McWaters, opened the bus door and allowed Oswald to board. A few minutes later, with the bus stalled in traffic, Oswald asked for a transfer and got off the bus. Oswald then walked to the Greyhound bus station, got into a taxi, and rode to his rooming house on North Beckley Street. Oswald spent a few minutes changing clothes, picked up his pistol, and then walked out of the rooming house, zipping up his jacket. The Warren Commission says Oswald then walked to 10th and Patton, arriving about 1.16 p.m. A police officer pulled over to the curb. Oswald walked to the police car and began talking to the officer through the passenger side car window. As the police officer got out of the vehicle, Oswald shot him, then hurried south on Patton Street, turned right on Jefferson Boulevard, and heard through a parking lot behind the Texaco station where he discarded his light-colored jacket. 
He then hurried west on Jefferson Boulevard and briefly ducked into a vestibule at Hardy's shoe store, where he was seen by store manager Johnny Brewer. Brewer saw Oswald walk west on Jefferson Boulevard and then sneak into the Texas Theater without purchasing a ticket. The Warren Commission says, Brewer then asked the cashier, Julia Postal, if Oswald purchased a ticket. Brewer went into the theater looking for the man who had snuck into the theater. Brewer could not find the suspicious man, returned to the cashier, and told her to call the police. A few minutes later, the police arrived, arrested Oswald, and took him to jail. This is the Warren Commission's version of the Tippett murder. The details of the Tippett murder, the people involved, and their activities are very difficult to follow. Many people are involved, and they are going in different directions and doing different things at exactly the same time. Following these people and trying to remember their activities and locations in sequential order, minute by minute, can be frustrating and confusing. The Prearranged Murder of Officer J.D. Tippett It should come as no surprise that nearly everything that involved Harvey Oswald and Lee Oswald on November 22nd was pre-planned. Everything. Because nothing could be left to chance. Harvey Oswald allegedly bringing a long package to the book depository on the morning of November 22nd was pre-planned. Oswald working and leaving fingerprints on the sixth floor of the book depository was pre-planned. Oswald sitting in the lunchroom when Kennedy was shot alone was pre-planned. Oswald leaving quickly from the book depository, making it appear as his escape from leaving the building was pre-planned. I do not believe that on the morning of November 22nd, when Harvey Oswald left the Payne home in Irving, Texas, he knew anything about the pre-planned assassination of President Kennedy. Nearly all of Oswald's movements and whereabouts on November 22nd were pre-planned. But Harvey Oswald knew nothing of these plans. He was simply following orders. After President Kennedy was shot, Harvey Oswald left the Texas School Book Depository by way of the loading dock at the rear of the building. He then walked east on Elm Street, pounded on the door of the Marcellus bus while the bus was stopped in traffic. Oswald boarding the Marcellus bus was pre-planned. Officer Tippett, sitting at the Gloco station, waiting for Harvey Oswald, was pre-planned. Oswald going to the Texas Theater was pre-planned. The murder of Officer Tippett was pre-planned. It may seem hard to imagine or understand why two Dallas police officers would become involved in a plot to murder Officer Tippett, a fellow Dallas policeman, in front of numerous eyewitnesses. The extent of Tippett's involvement in the events of November 22nd are mostly unknown, but Officer Tippett, as we shall see, knew both Lee Oswald and Harvey Oswald. The precise time and exact location of Tippett's murder was carefully planned and staged in order to make it appear as though Harvey Oswald shot and killed President Kennedy from the book depository, and 45 minutes later shot and killed Officer Tippett in Oak Cliff. The murder of Officer Tippett was simply the final act in a long drama wherein Lee Oswald framed Harvey Oswald for the murder of President Kennedy and for the murder of Officer Tippett. Officer Tippett was one of the few people 
who is familiar with both Lee Oswald and Harvey Oswald. Two days before the assassination, on November 20th, Harvey Oswald left his rooming house at 1026 North Beckley, boarded the Beckley City bus, and at 8 a.m. arrived for work at the book depository. Two hours later, at 10 a.m., Lee Oswald arrived at the Dobbs House restaurant, a small cafe located at 1221 North Beckley, two blocks north of Harvey Oswald's rooming house. Lee Oswald ordered coffee and eggs over light from waitress Mary Ada Dowling. Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett was sitting at a nearby table drinking coffee. Tippett worked the 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. shift in District 78 in South Oak Cliff, six miles south of the Dobbs House restaurant. When Mary Dowling served Oswald's breakfast, he complained that the eggs were cooked too hard, and he cursed at her. When she offered to replace his order, Oswald belligerently refused. A few minutes later, after waiting for a coffee refill, Oswald again cursed at Mary and attracted the attention of Officer Tippett, who said nothing. Lee Oswald's rude mannerisms were also observed and remembered by Chef Dolores Harrison and restaurant owner Sam Rogers. The next time Lee Oswald and Officer Tippett were seen together was two days later on the morning of November 22nd. First, when they were seen at the same time in the top 10 record store and later when they were talking to each other through the passenger side car window of Tippett's patrol car near 10th and Patton. After finishing breakfast at the Dobbs house, Lee Oswald was next seen at the Beckley Street entrance to the R.L. Thornton Expressway, a mile south of the restaurant. Ralph Leon Yates was a 27-year-old refrigeration serviceman who worked for the Texas Butcher Supply Company at 2038 Commerce Street in Dallas. Yates was returning from Charlie Jordan's meat market in Oak Cliff when he spotted a man attempting to secure a ride toward downtown Dallas. Yates stopped to pick up the man, who was carrying a four to four and a half foot long package wrapped in brown paper. Yates told the man he could put the package in the back of the truck, but the man said the package contained curtain rods, and he preferred to carry it in the cab of the truck. As they drove towards downtown area, the hitchhiker asked Yates if he thought a man could be shot from a window in a tall building. Yates, somewhat surprised, said that it would be possible if a man had a good rifle with a scope and was a good shot. The hitchhiker then pulled out a photograph that showed a man holding a rifle and asked Yates if he thought the president could be killed with an identical rifle. Yates glanced at the picture and recalled the photograph was the same man sitting in his truck. In the photo, the man was holding a rifle in his right hand, but the butt of the rifle was resting on the ground. The rifle had a strap, but no scope, and the man was wearing a pistol in a holster. The man then asked Yates if he knew the president's parade route, and then asked if he thought the route would be changed. Yates said he doubted the route would be changed unless it was changed for safety reasons. As Yates approached downtown Dallas, the hitchhiker told Yates that he was going to Houston Street. Yates turned off the expressway onto Commerce, drove north on Houston, 
and stopped for the traffic light at the corner of Elm and Houston. The hitchhiker got out of the truck and Yates watched as the man crossed Elm Street and continued north on Houston. Yates turned left in front of the Texas School Book Depository building, got back on the expressway, and drove to the Parkett Market on Shady Grove Road in Irving. When Yates returned to the Texas Butcher Supply Company, he told fellow employee Dempsey Jones about the hitchhiker and the long package that contained curtain rods. Yates also told Dempsey the young man talked about shooting a man from a window in a high-rise building. This young man was Lee Oswald, who was once again impersonating Harvey Oswald. But on this occasion, it was only two days before the assassination of President Kennedy. The day before the assassination, on Thursday, November 21st, Harvey Oswald rode with Wesley Frazier to Ruth Payne's home in Irving after work, allegedly to visit his wife and children. However, I believe that Harvey Oswald is simply following detailed orders, instructions, that were given to him by someone very close to the conspirators. The real purpose of Oswald's visit may have been to pick up and open a package that was mailed to him at the Paynes' home. This package, however, was not delivered to the Paynes' house because of insufficient postage. The package was held at the Irving Post Office and later opened by a postal inspector. The original address on this package was 2525 West 5th, Irving, Texas, the same address that appeared on the post office's notice of attempted delivery. Someone within the post office placed a label over Ruth Payne's address after the assassination. The label shows a different address for Oswald. The package contained a long brown paper bag, similar in size and appearance to the paper bag allegedly used by Harvey Oswald to carry the rifle into the book depository. If Harvey Oswald had received this package at Ruth Payne's home, opened this package, and examined the bag, then this paper bag would have been placed on the sixth floor of the book depository. Oswald's fingerprints on this paper bag would connect him to the Manisher Carcano rifle found on the sixth floor of the book depository. As Harvey Oswald was relaxing with his family on Thursday evening in Irving, Texas, a young man knocked on the door of apartment number 206 at 223 South Ewing about 9 p.m. The apartment, 13 miles away in Oak Cliff, was occupied by a professor at Southern Methodist University. The knock was answered by the professor's friend, Helen McIntosh, who greeted an unknown young man. When the man asked for Jack Ruby, the professor told Miss McIntosh that Ruby lived in the adjoining apartment, number 207. The next day, following the assassination, Miss McIntosh saw photographs of Lee Harvey Oswald on television and realized that this was the same young man who had appeared at the door of her apartment the previous evening. The young man who spoke with Helen McIntosh was not the man she saw on television. The man Helen saw was Lee Oswald. A few hours later, at 2.15 a.m. on November 22nd, Lee Oswald entered the Lucas B&B restaurant at 3520 Oaklawn, two doors 
from the Vegas Club at 3805 Oaklawn. Mary Lawrence was the head waitress and had known Jack Ruby for eight years. Oswald told Mary and also told the night cashier that he was waiting for Jack Ruby. A short while later, Ruby entered the cafe, sat at a table, and was soon joined by Lee Oswald. The two men sat together and talked for over a half an hour and then left. The FBI did not take Mary seriously because they knew that Lee Harvey Oswald spent the night with his wife at Ruth Payne's in Irving. When subsequently questioned by the Dallas police, Mary stuck to her story. She didn't care if Oswald was supposed to have been at Ruth Payne's at 2.15 on the morning of November 22nd. Mary was positive that she saw Ruby and Oswald together in her restaurant. Mary told detectives R.W. Westfall and P.M. Parks that the man in her restaurant was positively Lee Harvey Oswald and that he was waiting for Jack Ruby. A week and a half after the assassination, on December 3rd, Mary received a phone call from an unknown man who said, quote, if you don't want to die, you better get out of town. Mary and her co-worker both saw Lee Oswald and Jack Ruby together only 10 hours before the assassination. Yet neither woman was questioned or interviewed by the Warren Commission. On the morning of November 22nd, when Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett left work, he hugged his 14-year-old son, Alan, and said, quote, no matter what happens today, I want you to know that I love you, end quote. Alan Tippett remembered this was an unusual display of affection from his normally unaffectionate father. It was the last time Alan Tippett saw his father alive. On the morning of November 22nd, Harvey Oswald left the Paynes home in Irving, Texas and walked to the nearby home of Wesley Frazier, with whom he rode to the book depository in Dallas. Frazier's sister, Liddy Mae Randall, saw Oswald as he walked to her house. Mrs. Randall told Warren Commission Attorney Mr. Ball that Oswald was wearing a dark gray colored jacket. Warren Commission testimony, Mr. Ball. Well, this one is gray, but of these two, the jacket I last showed you is Commission Exhibit 162, and this blue-gray is 163. Now, if you had to choose between these two, Mrs. Randall, I would choose the dark one. Mr. Ball, you would choose the dark one? Miss Randall, yes, Mr. Ball, which is 163. According to Mrs. Randall, Harvey Oswald was wearing the dark-colored jacket described as 163, Commission Exhibit 163, on the morning of November 22nd. The identification of this dark-colored jacket and the shirts worn by Harvey Oswald and Lee Oswald are crucial in following their movements. On November 22nd, Lee Oswald was wearing a white t-shirt and the light-colored jacket, Commission Exhibit 162. Harvey Oswald was wearing a dark brown long sleeve shirt over a white t-shirt and the dark colored blue-gray jacket shown above Commission Exhibit 163. Lee Oswald, white jacket. Harvey Oswald, dark jacket. At 7.30 a.m., while Harvey Oswald and Wesley Frazier were en route to the book depository, J.W. Dub Stark 
arrived at his top 10 record store to find Lee Oswald waiting outside. Stark was the owner of the record store, which was located at 338 West Jefferson in Oak Cliff. The store still exists and is across the street and a block and a half west of the Texas Theater. After opening the store, Dub Stark sold Oswald a ticket to the Dick Clark show, Caravan of Stars, which was to be held at the Dallas Municipal Auditorium that evening. Lee Oswald left the store but returned a short time later and purchased another ticket for the same show. During Oswald's second visit, police officer J.D. Tippett was also in the store but did not speak with Oswald. This information about Oswald, Tippett, and the Top Ten Record Store was provided by FBI agent Carl Walters in a memo he wrote to the special agent in charge of the Dallas office. The memo read, on December 3rd, 1963, Mr. John D. Whitten telephonically advised that he heard Lee Harvey Oswald was in the Top Ten Record Store on Jefferson Boulevard on the morning of November 22nd. Oswald bought a ticket of some kind and left. Then sometime later, Oswald returned to the record shop and wanted to buy another ticket. News reporter Earl Goltz confirmed this story during an interview with Dub Stark, the owner of the Top 10 Record Store. At 9.30 a.m., while Harvey Oswald was working at the book depository, Lee Oswald entered the Jiffy Store at 310 South Industrial Boulevard, one mile southwest of the book depository. When Lee Oswald brought two beers to the checkout counter, the store clerk, Fred Moore, asked Oswald for identification. Lee Oswald said, sure, I got ID. He removed a Texas driver's license from his billfold and showed it to Moore. Moore told FBI agent David Barry that he remembered the name on the license was either Lee Oswald or possibly H. Lee Oswald. Moore said the birth year on the license was 1939 and he thought the month was October. Barry described Moore's contact with Oswald in his report and wrote, quote, identification of this individual arose when he, Moore, asked him, Oswald, for identification as to proof of age for the purchase of two bottles of beer. Moore said he figured the man was over 21, but the store frequently required proof by reason of past difficulties with local authorities for serving beer to minors." End quote. Store clerk Moore told Agent Barry, quote, Oswald returned in less than a half an hour to buy another beer and two pieces of pico brittle at five cents each, which he consumed on the premises, end quote. Store clerk Moore remarked to Oswald in the form of a question, quote, candy and beer, end quote, as Moore considered this to be an odd combination. Moore said, the man seemed to be nervous while in the store, pacing the aisles as he ate the candy. The Warren Commission concluded that Oswald did not drive a car and did not have a driver's license. However, five days after the assassination, Lee Oswald's driver's license turned up at the Texas Department of Public Safety in Austin. Aletha Frere was an employee who worked in the license records department, 
which was responsible for IBM computer records of all driver's licenses issued in the state of Texas. Five days after the assassination, on November 22nd, Lee Oswald's well-worn driver's license came into her division. Mrs. Frere said, one of the girls working in the file cabinets pulling driver's licenses to be renewed or because of change of name or because of death, ran across the license and exclaimed, I have his license. I have Lee Harvey Oswald's driver's license right here. All of the employees within earshot, five or six people, then rushed to see the license and saw Lee Oswald's pink-colored Texas driver's license. Mrs. Frere wrote, I saw with my own eyes the pink Texas driver's license, about two and a half inches by three and a half inches. The license had the name Lee Harvey Oswald printed on the card as the licensee. The license was stained with some sort of brownish discoloration. Mrs. Frere said the brown stains on the dirty, worn license may have been caused by carrying the license in a brown wallet. The license was the talk of the office since everyone knew who Oswald was and the reason his driver's license records and IBM card were being pulled from the active file was due to the fact that he had been killed. Fellow employee Mrs. Lee Bozarth stated categorically that she knew from direct personal experience there was a Texas driver's license and a file for Lee Harvey Oswald and that it was pulled and given to a federal agency in early December 1963. Texas Department of Public Safety Procedures for issuing licenses and creating files was confirmed by her supervisor, Mr. Griven, to the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1978. Six other employees also saw Oswald's file, including Ray Sunday, Joyce Bostick, Inez Leek, Gail Scott, Peggy Smith, and Mrs. Ernest Isaacs. In 1978, House Select Committee investigator Gary Sanders contacted the Texas Department of Public Safety for information about Oswald's driver's license. After having a brief and curt conversation with Mrs. Say, Mr. Sanders wrote, it is very obvious to me that if there are any records at the Department of Public Safety pertaining to Lee Harvey Oswald, they're not going to release them. A news reporter asked Harvey Oswald, quote, were you inside the building at the time of the shooting? End quote. Oswald replied, naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. End quote. But Oswald never said he was outside on the steps, not to news reporters and not to anyone. And not one of the people who were on the steps, Wesley Frazier, Ocus Campbell, Sarah Stanton, Billy Lovelady, and others, never said that Oswald was outside on the steps with them. If people want to believe Oswald was outside on the steps, they have to explain why Oswald, on camera, said he was inside the building during the assassination. A few minutes after Harvey Oswald learned that President Kennedy had been shot, he located and spoke with his supervisor and CIA contact Bill Shelley. I believe that it was Shelley who told Oswald to board the Marcellus bus and meet his contact at the Texas Theater. If not Shelley, 
than who in the book depository told Oswald to board the bus and go directly to the Texas theater. Someone, and I believe it was Shelley, gave Oswald half of two $1 bills and told him that his contact in the Texas theater would show him the other half of the dollar bills for identification. In 1974, Dallas journalist Elsie Glaze met a woman who had been working for the Texas Book Depository since 1969. Her immediate supervisor was Bill Shelley, who Glaze met and then contacted on numerous occasions. In a 1989 letter, Glaze wrote, quote, Mr. Shelley claims to have been an intelligence officer during World War II and thereafter joined the CIA, end quote. Shelley was Oswald's supervisor at the Book Depository, but his connections with Oswald could have been much deeper. Here's a photo of Harvey Oswald handing out Fair Play for Cuba literature in front of the International Trademark Building in New Orleans. There's a man standing behind Oswald and to his left with a very distinct hairstyle. When the photo of this man is compared with photos of Bill Shelley taken on November 22nd, the similarities are obvious. If the man in the photo was Bill Shelley, then his connection with Harvey Oswald is much deeper. Harvey Oswald, wearing a long sleeve brown shirt and carrying his blue-gray jacket, quickly left the book depository. His quick departure was pre-planned to make it appear as though Oswald was trying to quickly escape from the scene of the shooting. Minutes after Harvey left the building, it was Bill Shelley who told Supervisor Roy Truly that Oswald was missing. Harvey Oswald walked east on Elm Street and saw the Mercedes bus stopped in traffic in the middle of the street near Griffin Street. Oswald walked up to the bus and began pounding on the door. Driver Cecil McWaters opened the door and allowed Harvey Oswald and a blonde woman to board the bus around 12.40 p.m. About the time Harvey boarded the Marcellus bus, a U.S. government employee named Stuart L. Reed photographed the front of the bus. Reed was a 30-year U.S. Army veteran who was then living in Panama, managing civilian employees under the auspices of the U.S. Army, which was in charge of the Panama Canal. Why would a U.S. government employee living and working in Panama travel to Dallas, Texas, and photograph the front of a nondescript city bus. The Marcellus bus was soon stalled in traffic, and about four minutes later, Harvey Oswald got up from his seat, obtained a bus transfer, and left the bus via the front door. The blonde woman left the bus at the same time through the rear door. This blonde woman may have been following Harvey Oswald, and may have followed Oswald to William Whaley's taxi. While the bus was stalled in traffic, U.S. government employee Stuart Reed took a photograph of the rear of the Marcellus bus. Again, why would a U.S. government employee living and working in Panama travel to Dallas, Texas and photograph the front and then the rear of the Marcellus bus? These photographs were taken very near the time two police officers boarded the bus 
looking for Harvey Oswald, who had left the bus only moments earlier. A few minutes later, Sturt Reed took a photograph of the sixth floor window of the book depository before this area was identified as the sniper's nest. An hour later, Stuart Reed took several photos of Harvey Oswald as he was being escorted by police from the Texas Theater in handcuffs. U.S. government employee Stuart Reed, who lived and worked in Panama, took all of these photos, which sequentially followed Oswald's movements from the time he left the book depository to his arrest at the Texas Theater. Reed dropped his film off at a photo lab in Dallas and then traveled to New Orleans to catch a boat and return to the Canal Zone in Panama. Prior to boarding the boat, Reed signed an authorization in New Orleans that allowed the FBI to pick up his developed photo slides in Dallas. The FBI told the Warren Commission that a government executive, Reed, answering to the military took the photos. This seemed to satisfy the Warren Commission, and Reed dropped out of sight without ever seeing his color slides or photographs. If Harvey Oswald had been killed by the two police officers while on the Marcellus bus, Reed's photographs would have been on the front page of every newspaper and magazine. After getting off the bus, Harvey Oswald walked three blocks south on Lamar Street towards the Greyhound bus station and got into William Whaley's taxi. Whaley said, quote, he wasn't in any hurry. He wasn't nervous or anything. Whaley said that Oswald was wearing a dark brown button-up shirt, a t-shirt, and a blue-gray jacket. Lee Oswald. As Harvey Oswald was walking to Whaley's taxi cab, Lee Oswald was seen getting into a Nash Rambler station wagon in Dealey Plaza. Prior to the shooting, Richard Randolph Carr saw a man on the sixth floor of the book depository and said he was wearing glasses, a hat, and a tan sport coat. Carr saw the same man moments after the shooting, walking south on Houston Street directly towards him. Carr said the man was wearing horn-rimmed glasses and was constantly looking back over his shoulder towards the book depository. When the man reached Commerce Street, he turned east, walked one block to Record Street, and got into a 1961 or 62 light-colored Nash Rambler station wagon. The car was parked near the intersection of Commerce and Record, facing north. The station wagon was last seen by Mr. Carr heading north on Record Street towards Elm Street, one block east of the book depository. Traffic was stalled on Elm Street, and the Nash Rambler was unable to turn left for several minutes. At 12.40 p.m., Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig was staying on the south side of Elm Street when he heard a shrill whistle coming from across the street. Craig saw a man with sandy brown hair, wearing faded blue trousers and a light-colored shirt, hurrying towards the street. A light green Nash Rambler station wagon with a chrome luggage rack driven by a husky Latin man with short dark hair was moving slowly west on Elm Street. The vehicle suddenly stopped and the man, a white male in his early 20s, wearing a light colored shirt about 5 foot 9 and 140 to 150 pounds, ran across the lawn that was adjacent to the Elm Street extension and got into the station wagon. 
Craig was unable to cross Elm Street due to heavy traffic and watched as the car drove west on Elm under the triple underpass and headed in the direction of Oak Cliff. Marvin Robinson was driving his Cadillac west on Elm Street, directly behind the Nash Rambler station wagon. After crossing Houston, he drove past the book depository and almost slammed into the back of the Nash Rambler when it suddenly stopped. Robinson noticed a white male, who he later identified as Oswald, hurry down the grass-covered incline and enter the station wagon. He then followed the car as it drove under the triple overpass. Marvin Robinson's employee, Roy Cooper, was following Robinson in a different vehicle. Cooper remembered the Nash Rambler stopped so suddenly that his boss, Mr. Robinson, narrowly avoided running into the back of the Nash Rambler station wagon. Cooper saw a white male between 20 and 30 years of age, who he thought was Oswald, wave at the driver, hurry toward the car, and enter the vehicle. The FBI interviewed Marvin Robinson and Roy Cooper, but they never testified before the Warren Commission, nor were their statements published in the Warren volumes. Mrs. Helen Forrest saw the same young man run from the side of the book depository and enter a Nash Rambler station wagon on Elm Street. Mrs. Forrest said, quote, if it wasn't Oswald, it was his identical twin. Mrs. Forrest was the first and only witness in Dealey Plaza to identify the man in the white shirt as Oswald or his identical twin. Another witness, James Pennington, also saw the same man in a white shirt run from the side of the book depository and enter a Nash Rambler station wagon. After viewing photographs of Oswald on television, Pennington identified the man he saw get into the station wagon as Lee Harvey Oswald. These eyewitnesses, Craig, Robinson, Cooper, Forrest, Pennington, saw a man who looked very much like Harvey Oswald. But this man was not Harvey Oswald, who was later arrested by the police and shot and killed two days later by Jack Ruby. These witnesses saw Lee Oswald, the man who had been impersonating Harvey Oswald for several months for the purpose of setting him up as a patsy. Photographer Jim Murray took a picture of the crowd standing in front of the book depository and also captured the Hertz sign on the top of the book depository which read 12.40 p.m. Murray's photo shows a man standing on the south side of Elm Street wearing a light colored shirt and looking at the light-colored Nash Rambler station wagon. Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig can be seen standing on the east side of Elm Street observing the man as he approaches the car. Craig described the driver to the Warren Commission, quote, now he struck me at first as being a colored male. He was very dark complected, had real dark short hair, and was wearing a thin white-looking jacket. It looked like the short windbreaker type you know, because it was real thin and had the collar that came out over the shoulder. And that just a short jacket. Lee Oswald left Dealey Plaza at 12.40 p.m. wearing a white t-shirt. 15 minutes later, he was seen wearing a white Eisenhower-type jacket on 10th Street and carrying a 38 revolver. It is possible the jacket and the revolver were given to Oswald by the driver of the Nash Rambler station wagon. It's also possible that Lee Oswald picked up these items from Jack Ruby's apartment. A few minutes before 1 p.m., Lee Oswald was seen walking west, past the 10th Street Barbershop, only three blocks 
from Jack Ruby's apartment. A minute later, Lee Oswald was walking west on 10th Street, four blocks from his prearranged meeting at 1 o'clock p.m. with Dallas Police Captain W.R. Westbrook and Officer Tippett. It may seem hard to imagine or understand why two Dallas police officers would become involved in a plot to murder a fellow uniformed Dallas policeman in broad daylight in front of numerous eyewitnesses. However, as the following evidence will show, the murder of Dallas police officer Tippett was prearranged, as was Oswald's prearranged trip to the Texas theater and involved Lee Oswald and two or more Dallas police officers. One of those police officers was 45-year-old Captain William Ralph Westbrook. In 1963, Captain Westbrook was 45 years old and in charge of personnel at Dallas Police Headquarters. He had his own office, worked at a desk, and dressed in plain clothes. Westbrook's work on a day-to-day -day basis was more like a civilian than a police officer. Westbrook told the Warren Commission, quote, at the present time, I am personnel officer. We conduct all background investigations of applicants, both civilian and police. We investigate all personal complaints, not all of them, but the major ones, end quote. On November 22nd, around 12.31 p.m., Mrs. Kinney, one of the police dispatchers, came into Westbrook's office and told him that shots had been fired at President Kennedy. Westbrook sent officers from his personnel office, Sergeant Stringer and Carver, and possibly Joe Fields and H.L. McGee, to the Texas Book Depository. But how did Westbrook know to send his officers directly to the Texas School Book Depository when the earliest police dispatches reported gunshots from the Grassy Knoll area? Westbrook told the Warren Commission that he walked down the hall spreading the word and telling other people that they needed some men down there at the book depository and that almost everyone left. Westbrook said he, quote, sat around, end quote, for a while and then decided to walk to Dealey Plaza. Westbrook told the Warren Commission there wasn't a police car available to drive him to the book depository. But this was the first of many lies that Westbrook told the Warren Commission. Dallas police car number 207, assigned to officer Jimmy Valentine, was in the basement parking area, as were other police cars. Westbrook told the Warren Commission that while walking from the police station to the book depository, he stopped along the way to listen to transistor radio reports. This was the first of many lies that Westbrook told the Warren Commission. And Westbrook's lies can be read and understood again and again in his testimony. Westbrook told the Warren Commission, quote, after we, we, reached the building. Now notice that Westbrook said we, plural. Yet he told the Warren Commission he walked by himself to the book depository. I contacted my sergeant, Stringer, and he was standing in front, and so then I went into the building to help start the search. Westbrook said he went into the building to help start the search. But when Westbrook finally arrived, Police had already been searching the book depository. Westbrook then said, I was on the first floor and I walked down an aisle and opened a door onto an outside loading dock. And when I came out onto this dock, one of the men hollered and said there'd been an officer killed in Oak Cliff. Captain Westbrook's Warren Commission testimony aside, his whereabouts 
from the time he was last seen at police headquarters, around 12.35 p.m., to his arrival at the book depository, around 1.20 p.m., are unknown. His story of walking alone to the book depository after the President of the United States was shot is nearly impossible to believe. And there's no proof that Westbrook ever walked to Dv Plaza or was ever in the book depository. But Westbrook's story, as we shall see, is full of lies. But it gave him an alibi to account for 40 to 50 minutes of his time. The purpose of my work is to determine the likely whereabouts of Captain Westbrook and his accomplice, Reserve Officer Sergeant Kenneth Croy, and their whereabouts from 12.35 through 1.20 p.m. on the afternoon of November 22nd. Sergeant Kenneth Croy was an unpaid, voluntary reserve officer with the Dallas Police. As a reserve officer, Croy was not allowed to carry a gun and could carry only a nightstick. I believe Dallas Police Reserve Officer Sergeant Kenneth Croy was with Westbrook during Westbrook's missing 40 to 50 minutes. Croy was 26 years old, separated from his wife, and living with his parents on November 22nd. Croy told the Warren Commission that when President Kennedy was shot, he was sitting in his car at City Hall, the same location and the same time that Westbrook was at City Hall, police headquarters. Croy said that after he learned that shots were fired at President Kennedy, he left the police station and began to drive his car home. Croy told the Warren Commission that in downtown Dallas, he was, quote, hemmed in from both sides by traffic on Main and Griffin for about 20 minutes. He testified that he then drove past the courthouse on Elm Street and asked police officers, whose names he did not know, if he could be of any assistance. Croy said that after the officers said no, that he proceeded to drive home. Croy would have us believe that after shots were fired at the president, he left the police station and was told by unknown police officers that his services were not needed when many off-duty police officers were called at home and told to report for duty. Croy testified that while talking with police officers in front of the courthouse, his estranged wife pulled up beside me in her car. They began talking and then decided to go to lunch at Austin's barbecue, even though Croy and his wife were separated. But first, Croy said that he needed to change clothes at his parents' home. On the day of President Kennedy's assassination, Croy would like us to believe that his priorities were to drive to his parents' house, change clothes, and have lunch with his estranged wife. Croy's Warren Commission testimony aside, his whereabouts from 12.30 p.m. to 1.10 p.m. are unknown. His story of sitting in a car when the president was shot and getting hemmed in with traffic for 20 minutes gave him an alibi to account for nearly three quarters of an hour of his time. Croy would like us to believe that on the day the President of the United States was killed, one of the most memorable days of the century, he decided to have lunch with his estranged wife and go home. I do not believe that Westbrook walked to Dealey Plaza, nor do I believe Westbrook was in the book depository. I do not believe that Croy spoke with police officers in front of the courthouse, or had lunch with his wife, or went home to change clothes. I believe that Westbrook and Croy's stories and lies to the Warren Commission were an attempt to hide their real activities following the assassination of President Kennedy. I believe that around 1237, Westbrook, along with Croy, drove to Dealey Plaza and parked Westbrook's 
unmarked dark blue police car near the book depository. After work, Harvey Oswald usually boarded the Beckley bus next to the book depository. The Beckley bus went under the triple overpass, crossed the Trinity River, turned left on Beckley Avenue, and Oswald normally deboarded very close to his rooming house at Beckley and Zhang. However, on November 22nd, Harvey Oswald didn't board the Beckley bus. Harvey Oswald, following orders, boarded the Marcellus bus driven by Cecil McWaters. Oswald's assignment was to go directly to the Texas Theater and meet his contact. The same time that Oswald boarded the bus in the middle of the street, a woman also boarded the bus. The Marcellus bus route was to turn left on Houston Street at the Book Depository, continue south on Houston Street, turn right, cross the Trinity River on the Houston Street Viaduct, and then turn left on Marcellus Avenue towards Jefferson Boulevard. That's the bus route. It appears that Harvey's intention may have been to deboard the bus when the bus stopped at Marcellus Street and Zhang Boulevard, which was directly across the street from the Gloco station where Officer Tippett was sitting in his squad car. I believe that Harvey Oswald was told that a police officer would be waiting at the Gloco station to pick him up and drive him to the theater. Tippett's assignment may have been to pick up Harvey Oswald, drive him to the Texas theater, and then meet up with Captain Westbrook and Lee Oswald for their prearranged meeting at 1 p.m. at 10th and Patton. Bus driver McWaters told the Warren Commission, quote, as I left Field Street, it is just a short distance onto Griffin, and that is when someone, a man, came up and knocked on the door of the bus, and I opened the bus door, and he got on. And that's about seven or eight blocks from the book depository building. I didn't pay any particular attention to him. He was just, to me, dressed in what I would call work clothes, some type of little old jacket on, I would say a cloth jacket. He just paid his fare, sat down on the second seat on the right. So Harvey Oswald's destination was the Texas Theater, where he was likely told that he was to meet up with a contact in the darkened theater sometime after one o'clock. A few minutes after Harvey Oswald boarded the Marcellus bus, it became stalled in traffic. McWater said, quote, well, I was sitting in the bus. There was some gentleman in front of me in a car, and he came back and walked up to the bus, and I opened the door, and he said, I overheard on my radio in my car that the president has been, I believe he used the word, has been shot, end quote. McWaters then said, quote, that is when the gentleman decided he would get off the bus, end quote. Oswald got up from his seat, asked for a bus transfer, put the transfer in his shirt pocket, and got off the bus in the middle of the block near Poydras and Lamar. The woman who boarded the bus at the same time Oswald boarded the bus also requested a transfer and left the bus the same time as Oswald. The bus transfer that McWaters gave to Harvey Oswald was found by police in Harvey Oswald's shirt three hours later, around 4.45 p.m. The police contacted the Dallas Transit Company and spoke with a supervisor who identified Cecil McWaters as the driver who issued the transfer. Two hours later, while driving the Mercedes bus past City Hall, McWaters was stopped by the police. McWaters told the Warren Commission, quote, well, they, Dallas police, stopped me. It was, I would say, around 6.15 or somewhere around 6.15 or 6.20 that afternoon. They told me they had a transfer that I had issued that was cut out for Lamar Street at one o'clock. And they wanted to know if I knew anything about it. And I, after I looked at the transfer and my punch said, 
Yes, that is the transfer I issued because it had my punch mark on it. The superintendent has a list. In other words, it would be just like this and every man has a punch and he has his name and everything. In other words, if anyone calls in about a transfer or anything, I mean, one brings one in, he can look at it right down the list by the punch mark and tell whose punch it is and who it's registered to, end quote. After leaving McWater's bus, Harvey Oswald walked south on Lamar Street to the Greyhound bus depot. Taxi driver William Whaley saw Oswald and told the Warren Commission, he was just walking south on Lamar from Commerce Street when I saw him. He was dressed in just ordinary work clothes. It wasn't khaki pants, but they were khaki material, blue faded color, like a blue uniform made in khaki. Then he had on a brown shirt with a little silver-like stripe on it, and he had some kind of a jacket. I didn't notice very close, but I think it was a work jacket that almost matched his pants. The blue-gray jacket, Commission Exhibit 163. His shirt opened three buttons down here. He said, may I have the cab? And instead of opening the back door, he opened the front door, which is allowable there, and he got in. And about that time, an old lady, I think she was an old lady, I don't remember nothing, but her sticking her head down past him in the door and said, driver, will you call me a cab down here? Oswald said, I'll let you have this one. And she said, no, the driver can call me one. Now, I have wondered for years if this woman was the same woman who got on the bus and off the bus the same time as Harvey Oswald. If yes, then she was following Oswald. McWaters continued. I asked him where he wanted to go, and he said 500 North Beckley. As Whaley drove, he noticed that his passenger was wearing a shiny bracelet. We know that after shots were fired at President Kennedy, Captain Westbrook drove his unmarked dark blue police car together with Reserve Officer Croy from police headquarters to Dealey Plaza and arrived around 12.40 p.m. Westbrook knew that Harvey Oswald, according to plan, was supposed to be on Cecil McWater's bus. Westbrook also knew that Officer Tippett was waiting for Harvey Oswald to arrive on the Mercedes bus at or near the Gloco station. I believe that after Westbrook parked his dark blue unmarked police car, he saw the Mercedes bus stop near the book depository. Westbrook and Croy boarded this bus looking for Harvey Oswald, but they didn't know that only a few minutes earlier, Oswald had deboarded the bus. Roy Milton Jones, passenger on McWater's bus, told the FBI that two police officers came on the bus and searched passengers for weapons only a few minutes after a young man, Harvey Oswald, got off the bus. Jones said this man was wearing a light blue jacket and gray khaki pants. The presence of two police officers boarding McWater's bus was not discussed nor investigated by the Warren Commission, nor by the FBI, nor by the Dallas police. After failing to locate Harvey Oswald on the bus, Captain Westbrook now knew that Harvey Oswald would not be meeting up with Officer Tippett at or near the Gloco station. Where was Harvey Oswald? Why did he get off the bus? Westbrook now had to locate Harvey Oswald and make sure that he arrived at the Texas Theater. Only 10 minutes after the President of the United States was murdered, Officer Tippett was sitting in his patrol car at the Gloco station, watching traffic cross the viaduct from Dallas to Oak Cliff. 
It's obvious that Tippett was following orders, probably from Westbrook, and was somehow involved in the conspiracy. Tippett knew Lee Oswald, and he knew Harvey Oswald or knew about him. I believe that on November 22nd, Officer Tippett was told that his assignment was to make sure that both young men arrived safely at the Texas Theater. First, Harvey Oswald, who he was supposed to meet at the bus stop across from the Gloco station, and then Lee Oswald, who he was supposed to meet near 10th and Patton. Around 1245, as Wade was driving Harvey Oswald in his taxi, Dallas police officer Tippett was observed by five witnesses sitting in his patrol car at the Gloco station watching traffic. The Gloco station was at 1502 North Zang, just across the Trinity River from downtown Dallas via the Houston Street Viaduct. The five witnesses who saw Tippett sitting in his patrol car were photographer Al Volklin, his wife Lou, and three employees of the Gloco station, Tom Mullins, Emmett Hollingsworth, and J.B. Shorty Lewis. They all knew Tippett personally. The author believes that Tippett was waiting for Harvey Oswald to arrive on the Marcellus bus, which turned left from Zhang onto Marcellus Avenue, and then stopped, allowing passengers to deboard. But when Harvey Oswald did not get off the bus at either Marcellus Avenue or Jefferson Boulevard, Tippett knew there was a problem. Unknown to Tippett, Harvey Oswald had already deboarded the Marcellus bus on Elm Street in Dallas. So around 1252, 1253, Tippett quickly left the Gloco station, hurried south on Lancaster, and was likely following and monitoring McWater's bus as it drove south on Marcellus. Tippett's route from the Gloco station to Jefferson Boulevard, Tippett was following the bus because he wanted to see if when and where Harvey Oswald would get off the bus at Marcellus. At 12.54, Tippett was driving his patrol car south on Lancaster following the Marcellus bus and reported his position to the dispatcher as Lancaster and 8th. After the Marcellus bus turned left on Jefferson with no sign of Harvey Oswald, Tippett knew there was a problem. Tippett turned right on Jefferson Boulevard and hurried to the Top 10 record store. Tippett was known to store employees and asked to use the telephone, probably trying to contact Captain Westbrook. Tippett was in a hurry, and after asking a few customers to step aside, he placed a phone call. A minute later, apparently with no answer, Tippett hung up the phone and hurried to his police car. He began driving to 10th and Patton for his one o'clock meeting with Westbrook and Lee Oswald. Around the time Tippett left the Gloco station, taxi driver Whaley had already driven past the Gloco station. Whaley continued on Zhang, turned left on Beckley, and drove past Oswald's rooming house. Whaley said, quote, when I got pretty close to the 500 block on Neches and North Beckley, which is the 500 block, Oswald said, this will do fine. And I pulled over to the curb right there. He gave me a dollar bill. The trip was 95 cents. He gave me a dollar bill and didn't say anything, just got out, closed the door, walked around the front of the cab over to the other side of the street. Of course, traffic was moving through there and I put it in gear and moved on. That's the last I saw of him, end quote. As Whaley was driving Oswald to his rooming house, Officer Jimmy Valentine left Dallas Police Headquarters in police car 207 and drove Officer Jerry Hill 
and Dallas Morning News reporter Jim Yule to the book depository, arriving around 12.50 p.m. After Westbrook failed to find Harvey Oswald on the Mercedes bus, he needed to locate Harvey Oswald and make sure that he arrived at the Texas Theater. The most likely place for Harvey Oswald was his rooming house on North Beckley. But Westbrook dared not drive his unmarked dark blue police car in Oak Cliff. Instead, Captain Westbrook commandeered a nearby police car that just arrived at the book depository with Officer Jimmy Valentine driving along with Officer Jerry Hill and Dallas Morning News reporter Jim Ewell. Ewell said, quote, this officer, Jimmy Valentine, drove us back from east to west through downtown on the most circuitous route I can recall. And we were back there at the school book depository probably in less than two minutes. We found ourselves standing right out in the middle of the intersection of Houston and Elm. Captain Westbrook, along with Sergeant Croy, commandeered police car 207 and drove directly to Oswald's rooming house in Oak Cliff, hoping to locate Harvey Oswald. I believe Captain Westbrook and Croy were the two police officers seen by Erlene Roberts driving slowly past 1026 North Beckley, honking their horn while Oswald was in his room changing clothes. Mrs. Roberts saw the car and told the FBI the police car was number 207 with two occupants. It is important to question and wonder why anyone in the Dallas police would have any reason to personally know or be acquainted with Harvey Oswald prior to November 22nd and to know where he was living. Captain Westbrook knew all about Harvey Oswald because Westbrook was involved in the prearranged plan to murder Officer Tippett and then blame Harvey Oswald for Tippett's murder and for the murder of President Kennedy. When Erlene Roberts heard a car honking the horn, she looked out the window, saw a police car, and told the FBI the police car was number 207. The occupants of car 207 were not only co-conspirators, they were a direct link to the people who conspired to murder President Kennedy. Erlene Roberts' identification of police car 207 driving past 1026 North Beckley at 1 p.m. and honking the horn was a very serious problem. How would the Dallas police explain two of their officers driving past the rooming house of the man accused of killing President Kennedy only a half an hour earlier? Who were these two officers? Who ordered them to 1026 North Beckley? Officer Jimmy Valentine had the keys to car 207 and would only have given the keys to a fellow police officer, and Valentine would have known their identity. But Jimmy Valentine was never investigated, nor questioned. Why not? Valentine should have been interviewed by Dallas Police Internal Affairs, the FBI, the Secret Service, and or the Warren Commission, and asked who borrowed his squad car that afternoon. Valentine should have provided a written statement or affidavit as to either the location of car 207 or the officer to whom he gave the keys to car 207 prior to 1 o'clock p.m. on November 22nd. The opportunity to identify and connect the police officers in car 207 with Harvey Oswald was lost, and I believe it was intentionally lost. To resolve this problem, the Warren Commission requested Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry to determine the whereabouts of car 207 at 1 o'clock p.m. A brief letter of explanation was prepared and given to Chief Curry, who then forwarded this letter to the Warren Commission. This 
letter of explanation claimed that car 207 was parked at the book depository all afternoon. But this letter was not prepared or signed by the Department of Internal Affairs, nor by Jimmy Valentine, or his sergeant, or his lieutenant, or his platoon commander, Captain Cecil Talbert. This letter was prepared and signed by the man in charge of the personnel department, Captain Westbrook, the man who I believe drove car 207 past Oswald's rooming house that was seen by Erling Roberts. We must therefore wonder why Dallas Police Chief Curry would select Captain Westbrook to investigate the whereabouts of car 207 and then prepare and sign this letter. Officer Jimmy Valentine was not interviewed by the Warren Commission and there is no confirmation that Valentine gave the car keys to his sergeant, Sergeant Putnam, or anyone. When Putnam was interviewed by the Warren Commission, he was not asked, nor did he offer any information relating to keys to police cars given to him at the book depository. Putnam told the Warren Commission, quote, he assisted in covering the book depository building and aiding in searching the building. After getting out of Whaley's taxi, Harvey Oswald walked to his rooming house arrived a minute or two before 1 p.m. According to housekeeper Erlene Roberts, Oswald arrived, quote, in his shirt sleeves. On November 22nd, we need to remember that Harvey Oswald wore his blue-gray jacket to Wesley Frazier's house in Irving, wore this jacket when he arrived at the book depository, wore the same jacket on McWater's bus, and wore the same jacket in Whaley's taxi. Oswald was likely carrying his blue-gray zipper jacket in hand when he arrived at the boarding house. Harvey Oswald spent a minute or two changing his pants and his work shirt, t-shirt, before leaving. Housekeeper Roberts saw Oswald as he left the rooming house. She said, I noticed he had a jacket he was putting on. I recall the jacket was dark color and it was the type that zips up the front. Mrs. Roberts last saw Oswald near the corner of Beckley and Zhang on the right side of the rooming house. We know that Oswald was arrested for killing Officer Tippett, but Captain Fritz, in charge of the Homicide Department, never asked Oswald a single question about the Tippett murder. Nobody knew how or when Oswald arrived at 10th and Patton and met up with Officer Tippett. The Dallas police interviewed many residents in Oak Cliff to determine if anyone had seen Oswald walking toward 10th and Patton but not one resident saw Oswald walking anywhere in Oak Cliff on the afternoon of November 22nd. It is obvious that Harvey Oswald never walked or arrived at 10th and Patton, but somehow he arrived at the Texas Theater at 1.07 p.m., only a few minutes after he was last seen standing on the corner of Beckley and Zhang. The author believes that after Harvey Oswald left his rooming house, he did not walk to 10th and Patton, did not shoot Tippett, and did not walk to the Texas Theater. Oswald was inside his rooming house on North Beckley changing clothes when a police car drove by slowly, honked the horn, and slowly drove ahead. Oswald's landlady, Erlene Roberts, looked out the window, told the FBI the police car was number 207. When Oswald came out of his small room, Mrs. Roberts said, quote, I noticed he had a jacket he was putting on. I recall the jacket was a dark color and it was the type that zips up the front. 
The same jacket Harvey Oswald was wearing when he arrived at Wesley Frazier's house in Irving and the same jacket worn in William Whaley's taxi. Mrs. Roberts last saw Oswald standing on the corner of Beckley and Zhang at 1.01 to 1.02 p.m. Five minutes later, Harvey Oswald arrived at the Texas theater but was not wearing his dark colored jacket. That's important. The author believes that it was Captain Westbrook and Sergeant Croy who drove past Oswald's rooming house in car 207. They honked the horn, stopped near the corner of Beckley and Zhang Boulevard. Harvey Oswald got into the police car and was driven 1.1 miles to the Texas theater in less than two minutes. The green line in the photo above shows the route driven by Westbrook, Croy, and Harvey Oswald. <clears throat> Westbrook drove the police car to the alley behind the theater where Harvey Oswald got out of the car. He was wearing a dark brown long sleeve shirt but was not wearing the dark colored jacket that housekeeper Erlene Roberts saw him zipping up as he left the room. Oswald left his dark colored zippered jacket in police car 207. Oswald probably walked through a narrow passageway in the alley that extended from the alley to Jefferson Boulevard. This was used as a fire escape from the Texas theater. After emerging from the passageway and onto the sidewalk on Jefferson Boulevard, Oswald turned right, walked 60 to 70 feet to the ticket booth and purchased a movie ticket from cashier Julia Postal. Theater employee Butch Burroughs said Oswald arrived at the theater around 1.07 p.m. The only way Burroughs could have known what time Oswald arrived was when Oswald gave Burroughs his theater ticket. A few minutes later at 1.15, Burroughs sold Oswald popcorn. The Warren Commission, however, claimed that at 1.07, Oswald was walking from his rooming house to 10th and Patton and murdered Tippett at 1.16 p.m. After shooting Tippett, the Warren Commission said that Oswald hurried to the Texas theater and snuck into the theater around 1.35 p.m. The Warren Commission based their decision on the testimony of one young man, Johnny Brewer, the manager of Hardy's shoe store. Brewer told the Warren Commission that he stood on the sidewalk in front of his store and watched Oswald, who he said was wearing a dark brown long sleeve shirt, sneak into the Texas theater. But how could Johnny Brewer have seen Oswald sneak into the theater at 1.35 p.m. when Oswald arrived at the theater a half an hour earlier at 1.07? Now, this photo shows the distance from Hardy's shoe store to the Texas theater. Between the theater and the shoe store is the passageway from which Harvey Oswald emerged onto the sidewalk. The photo on the left above shows a view of the Texas theater while standing in front of Hardy's shoe store. The photo on the right shows the ticket booth, which is inset into the front of the building. Johnny Brewer could not have seen Oswald sneak into the theater because of the location of the ticket booth. The ticket booth was, and still is, inset under the front of the building, about eight feet from the sidewalk. A person buying a ticket or sneaking into the theater cannot be seen by anyone standing on the sidewalk unless they're standing directly in front of the theater. Finally, 
the time that Brewer said he saw Oswald sneak into the theater is a major problem. How could Johnny Brewer have watched Harvey Oswald wearing a dark brown long sleeve shirt sneak into the theater at 1.35 p.m. when Oswald purchased a theater ticket and entered the theater at 1.07 p.m. and then purchased popcorn from Butch Burroughs at 1.15 p.m. Brewer's handwritten and typed affidavit to the Dallas police claiming that he saw Oswald wearing a dark brown long sleeve shirt momentarily stop at his shoe store and then sneak into the Texas theater. Brewer's testimony before the Warren Commission is similar, but his story of watching Oswald sneak into the theater at 1.35 p.m. is contradicted by Butch Burroughs, who said Oswald was in the theater at 1.07 p.m. Julia Postal told the Warren Commission, quote, we open daily at 12.45, sometimes maybe five, four minutes later or something, but that's our regular hours. Above is the movie program schedule for the Texas Theater. Cartoons begin at 1 p.m. with the first movie beginning at 1.20. Jones Harris, a longtime assassination investigator from New York City, arrived in Dallas the day after the assassination. Harris interviewed theater cashier Julia Postal in the office of the manager of the Texas Theater. Harris asked Postal if she sold a ticket to the man arrested in the theater by the Dallas police. Postal immediately burst into tears. Harris walked out of the office and returned a short time later. When Harris asked Postal again if she sold Oswald a ticket, she again burst into tears. Harris was convinced that Postal knew that she sold Harvey Oswald a ticket to the theater. Butch Burroughs told Texas researcher Jim Mars that Postal knows she sold Oswald a ticket. Burroughs also told researcher Jim Mars that he had taken Oswald's ticket when he entered the theater and sold Harvey Oswald popcorn around 1.15. Harvey Oswald purchased a ticket from Julia Postal and entered the lower level of the Texas theater wearing a long sleeve brown shirt over a white t-shirt. Harvey Oswald was likely told that he was to meet up with his contact in the darkened theater and confirm the contact's identity by matching the serial number on his half of a $1 bill with the serial number on the other half of the same dollar bill shown by his contact. This document showing the serial numbers of the dollar bills was found in the Dallas Police Archives. The police found halves of two dollar bills in Oswald's wallet. This was a CIA method of clandestine contact. Wherever and whenever Oswald met his contact, this contact would provide confirmation of his or her identity by showing the other half of these dollar bills and confirm the serial numbers matched. I do not believe that early on the morning of November 22nd, when Harvey Oswald left the Payne home in Irving, Texas, that he had possession of these half dollar bills. And I do not believe that Harvey Oswald knew anything about the upcoming assassination of President Kennedy. Oswald told Captain Fritz that he learned about the shooting when he was in the lunchroom. Oswald then needed to locate his supervisor, Bill Shelley, for advice and direction. I believe it was Shelley who told Oswald to leave the building, to board the Mercedes bus, meet his contact at the Texas Theater. I further believe that it was Shelley who gave Oswald the two half dollar bills. If not Shelley, then who? Now, neither of these half dollar bills were photographed, listed on the handwritten police inventory, the typed inventory, or the joint FBI Dallas police inventory of Oswald's possession that was done on November 26th. At the National Archives in Adelphi, Maryland, I inspected and handled each item 
of inventory listed on the joint FBI Dallas Police Inventory of November 26th. These items were not among the inventory, nor were they ever mentioned by the Warren Commission. The half dollars were, however, described in detail on a Dallas Police Report inventory. The CIA's David Atlee Phillips wrote in his 1977 autobiography about using similar techniques. Phillips wrote that when he would meet a contact at a movie theater whom he didn't know, he carried with him a previously arranged item and recognized a pre-arranged coded phrase. After the shooting, Harvey Oswald was likely told that he was to meet up with his contact at the Texas theater. After buying a theater ticket, Harvey Oswald walked to the lower level of the theater and took a seat next to Jack Davis in the first row on the right side. 18-year-old Davis, who later became a minister in Dallas, remembered that Oswald was sitting next to him in the near-empty theater as the opening credits to the movie began, a few minutes before 1.20. After sitting next to Davis for a few minutes, Oswald got up and walked past empty seats to the small aisle on the right side of the theater and into the concessionary. Davis watched Harvey Oswald as he re-entered the theater and took a seat next to a man on the back row, directly across the aisle from Davis. Within a few minutes, Harvey Oswald got up and once again returned to the concessionary. He returned a few minutes later and took a seat across the aisle from Mr. Davis and then moved to another seat on the fourth row. It appeared to Davis as though Harvey Oswald was looking for someone, perhaps a contact. Jack Davis is correct. Harvey Oswald was looking for a contact. But there was no contact for Oswald to meet. Oswald meeting a contact in the Texas theater was a cleverly thought out ruse that was necessary in order to lure an unsuspecting Harvey Oswald into the theater. But the conspirator's reason for Oswald's appearance at the Texas theater was to make it appear as though he was hiding from the police. After buying popcorn from Butch Burroughs, Harvey Oswald took a seat next to a pregnant woman, perhaps his contact in the theater. Oswald sat next to this woman for a few minutes, and then both Oswald and the woman got up from their seats. According to Butch Burroughs, the pregnant woman went to the restroom, disappeared, and was never seen again. Now, I have a question. How likely is it that a pregnant woman would watch a war movie alone in a darkened theater at 1.15 in the afternoon and then disappear after sitting next to Oswald for a few minutes? The real reason for sending Lee Oswald to the theater may have been for Harvey Oswald to take possession of the 38 revolver that was used to murder Officer Tippett. The darkened theater also made it appear as though Oswald was hiding from the police. About 1.06 p.m., as Westbrook was leaving the Texas theater, Oswald was seen by several people walking west near the corner of 10th and Marcellus, more than a mile south of Harvey Oswald's rooming house. Lee Oswald was only three blocks north of Jack Ruby's apartment at 223 South Ewing, where he was seen the night before the assassination by Helen McIntosh, a guest of Jack Ruby's next door neighbor. Four blocks from Ruby's apartment and only one block east of 10th and Patton was a small single-story house at 511 East 10th that was owned by attorney Dick Loomis Sr. and his wife. Mrs. Loomis was a housewife and president of the Oak Cliff Fine Arts Club. She told FBI agents Griffin and Carter that a young couple 
who were identical to Lee Harvey and Marina Oswald, lived next door in an apartment complex at 507 East 10th, about a block from 10th and Patton. Mrs. Loomis saw Marina and her infant child in front of her home and recalled that Marina had jet black hair. She said Marina wore very plain clothing and on one occasion wore a light blouse and a plaid skirt and on another occasion a dark blouse and the same plaid skirt. Mrs. Loomis may have seen the lady who was then living with Lee Oswald. But Marina was living at Ruth Payne's in Irving, Texas. And Harvey Oswald was living in a room at 1026 North Beckley. This was yet another of many sightings of Lee Oswald with an unknown woman impersonating Harvey Oswald prior to the assassination. On one occasion, Mrs. Loomis saw a heavyset man visit the apartment next door and thought it may have been Ruby. FBI agent James Hosty, who never met Oswald face-to-face -face prior to November 22nd, told fellow FBI agent Carver Gayton that he left notes under Oswald's apartment door. But the Warren Commission reported that Harvey Oswald either lived either at his rooming house at 1026 North Beckley or at Ruth Payne's in Irving, Texas, neither of which was an apartment. Hosty did not leave notes at Oswald's rooming house or at Ruth Payne's house in Irving but Hosty could have left notes under the door at several of Lee Oswald's previous apartments, including 507 East 10th, 1106 Diceman Avenue, or an apartment in Oak Lawn that Ruby rented for Oswald, as reported by Dallas Police Department informant T-1. Hosty's familiarity with Lee Oswald may be the reason that following the assassination of President Kennedy, FBI Director Hoover ordered Hosty to have no further contact with Harvey Oswald while Oswald was in police custody. We know the Warren Commission said that Oswald walked from his rooming house at 1026 North Beckley at 1.02 p.m. to 10th and Patton where he shot Tippett at 1.16 p.m. But neither the Dallas police nor the FBI located a single witness who saw Oswald walking south towards 10th and Patton. There were, however, many witnesses who saw Oswald walking in a westerly direction on 10th Street for three blocks before reaching 10th and Patton. All of these witnesses were ignored by the Warren Commission. Many people in the neighborhood watched Lee Oswald as he crossed Marsalis Avenue, walked east towards 10th and Patton. Mr. Clark worked as a barber in Oak Cliff at the 10th Street Barbershop, 620 East 10th, two blocks north of Jack Ruby's apartment. Mr. Clark may have been the first person to see Lee Oswald walking west on 10th Street, four blocks east of 10th and Patton. FBI agent Carl Underhill reported, quote, on the morning of November 22nd, Clark had seen a man who he would bet his life on was Oswald passing the shop in a great hurry and had commented on the same to a customer in the chair. Lee Oswald continued walking and walked past the Town & Country Cafe at 604 East 10th, crossed Marcellus Avenue, and continued walking west on 10th Street. A few minutes after 1 p.m., William Lawrence Red Smith, working on a project one block east of 10th and Patton, began walking east towards the Town & Country Cafe for lunch. Smith told FBI agent Bookhart that he, quote, felt sure the man who walked by him going west on 10th Street was Lee Harvey Oswald. Tower workers James Archer and Jimmy Brewer were sitting on, in Archer's pickup truck on the southeast corner of 10th and Denver. Brewer saw the same young man walking west on 10th Street. J. 
Jimmy Brewer, 505 East 10th, was across the street from the construction site where Smith was working and they watched the same man as he continued walking west. Burt told FBI agents Christian and Acklin this man was a white male, five foot eight, wearing a light short jacket. Burt said that he, quote, caught a glimpse of the shooter, but was never closer than 50 to 60 yards to this man. William Arthur Smith told FBI agents Ward and Basham the man was a white male, 5'7 to 5'8, 20 to 25 years of age, 150 to 160 pounds, wearing a white shirt, light brown jacket, and dark pants. Taxi driver Scoggins was sitting in his taxi at the corner of 10th and Patton, eating his lunch as the police car passed by, driving east. Scoggins recognized Tippett as the driver in the police car and watched the young man as he approached the police car. Officer Tippett lived with his wife and family at 238 Glencairn, seven miles south of 10th and Patton, and he was assigned to Area 78 in South Oak Cliff. On November 22nd, Tippett was in Patrol District 91 in Central Oak Cliff, several miles from his assigned district. Curiously, several of the people who witnessed the shooting of Officer Tippett near 10th and Patton either knew Tippett or were familiar with him, even though he was many miles from his assigned patrol area. Jimmy Burt, a witness to the Tippett shooting, knew Tippett, quote, as an officer who frequented the neighborhood, end quote. Burt said, quote, this particular officer was known by the name Friendly to the residents of that area, end quote. Taxi driver William Scoggins said, quote, I wasn't paying too much attention to the man you see, just used to see him every day, end quote. Witness Tequila Clements, who lived at the home of Mr. and Mrs. Smathers at 327 East 10th, told researcher Mark Lane that she saw Tippett, quote, all the time. Five witnesses at the nearby Gloco station said they knew Tippett personally, yet the area around 10th and Patton was miles from his assigned patrol district. Tippett's familiarity with local residents could be explained and understood by the Warren Commission testimony of Virginia Davis, who lived at 400 East 10th, the house next door to where Tippett was shot and killed. Virginia Davis was asked by Warren Commission David Bellin, where was the police car parked? Davis answered, and her answer is very important. Quote, it was parked between the hedge that marks the apartment house where he, Tippett, lives in, and the house next door. According to Virginia Davis, Officer Tippett was living in the house at 410 East 10th, two houses east of Virginia's house. This house is actually a duplex apartment with 410 East 10th in the front and 408 in the rear. If Tippett was having an affair with a woman in this house, this would explain not only his familiarity with local residents, but it will also explain a familiar location where Tippett could meet up with Lee Oswald and Captain Westbrook. Now, a police officer driving a patrol car can park anywhere he chooses on a public street. The fact that Tippett stopped and parked directly in front of a private driveway is a strong indication that Tippett was pulled precisely where and when to park his patrol car. A minute or two before Westbrook and Croy arrived, Officer Tippett has parked his police car at the front entrance of a very narrow driveway that ran from 10th Street to the alley behind the houses. Tippett scheduled meeting at 1 o'clock p.m. with Lee Oswald, 
Captain Westbrook, and Sergeant Croy was no accident. As Tippett stopped and parked his vehicle in front of the small driveway, taxi driver Scoggins saw a young man walking west on 10th Street and watched the young man as he approached the police car. Scoggins told the Warren Commission the young man was wearing a light-colored jacket, a white shirt, and dark trousers. The young man walking toward Tippett's car was Lee Oswald, who began talking with Tippett through the passenger car window. Jimmy Burton William Smith watched the young man as he walked west on 10th Street towards Patton. They soon saw a black police squad car driving east and slowly pull over towards the curb. Lee Oswald casually walked over to the squad car and began talking with the officer through the passenger window. As Tippett and Lee Oswald began talking, Westbrook and Croy were driving east in the alley between 10th and Jefferson Boulevard. They crossed Patton Street and turned police car 207 left onto a very narrow driveway between two houses at 404 and 410 East 10th. The short drive from the Texas Theater took less than two minutes and places their arrival at the Tippett murder scene at 105 to 106. Westbrook and Croy were now looking directly at Lee Oswald, who was talking with Tippett through the passenger side car window. Jack Roy Tatum was driving west on 10th Street in his new red Ford Galaxy 500. As Tatum drove slowly past Tippett's squad car, he saw a young white male with both hands in the pockets of his zippered jacket leaning over the passenger side window of the squad car. Tatum said, quote, it looked as if Oswald and Tippett were talking to each other. It was almost as if Tippett knew Oswald, end quote. Of course they knew each other. Lee Oswald was the same man that sat next to the Oswald at the Dobbs House restaurant two days earlier. Lee Oswald and Tippett were both at the top 10 record store earlier that morning, while at the same time, Harvey Oswald was working at the book depository. Tatum said, quote, he had on a light colored zippered jacket, dark trousers, and what looked like a t-shirt on, end quote. Tatum later told the House Select Committee investigator Moriarty that he did not see Lee Oswald wearing a brown shirt, only a white t-shirt. While Lee Oswald, wearing the white t-shirt, was talking with Tippett, Harvey Oswald, wearing a long sleeve brown shirt, was sitting in the Texas theater. Tippett then got out of his patrol car and began walking toward the police car for his prearranged meeting with Captain Westbrook. As Tippett got out of his car, Lee Oswald stood up, backed away from the patrol car. As Tippett began walking around the front of the car, Lee Oswald pulled a 38 revolver and fired three shots. After Tippett fell to the ground, Lee Oswald began to leave the scene and walked towards the back of Tippett's patrol car. He then stopped, returned to the front of the patrol car where Tippett was laying, and deliberately shot him in the head. Jack Tatum had just driven past Tippett's patrol car and stopped his vehicle when he heard shots fired. Tatum saw the assailant, Lee Oswald, fire the fourth shot into Tippett's head. Tatum said, quote, whoever shot Tippett was determined that he shouldn't live 
and he was determined to finish the job. Something or someone caused Lee Oswald to stop, turn around, hurry back to the front of Tippett's car, and fire another shot into Tippett's head. Could Captain Westbrook, who was getting out of car 207 at the same time Tippett was shot, have said to Lee Oswald, finish the job, make sure he's dead, or something similar. That could have caused Lee Oswald to stop, turn around, retrace his steps, and then shoot Tippett in the head with a fourth shot. After the young man shot Officer Tippett, he hurried across Virginia Davis's lawn at 400 East 10th and crossed over to the west side of Patton Street. Taxi driver Scoggins called the dispatcher, D.G. Graham, and reported that a police officer had been shot. The dispatcher called for an ambulance, which arrived within two minutes, according to Scoggins. And then the dispatcher called the police. The taxi company dispatcher was probably the fourth citizen to call the police around 107 to 108 p.m. At 108, Domingo Benavides was driving his yellow 1958 Chevrolet pickup west on 10th Street, about six car lengths behind Jack Tatum, who was driving his red Ford Galaxy. Benavides was working as a mechanic at Dutch Motors with Ted Calloway and Sam Ginyard, only one block from the Tippett shooting. Benavides also worked as a barber. As Benavides was driving his truck, he approached the squad car and saw policemen get out of the car and walk towards the front of the patrol car. He then saw a man standing near the passenger door of the squad car shoot Officer Tippett. Benavides told the Warren Commission he heard three shots. He immediately slammed on the brake of his pickup truck, turned towards the curb, and stopped. At this point, Benavides was the closest witness to the shooting of Tippett, about 15 feet from the front of Tippett's squad car and on the opposite side of the street. 15 feet. That's close. Benavides told the Warren Commission, quote, I heard the shot and I just turned into the curb, looked around to miss a car, I think. And then I pulled up to the curb, hitting the curb. I ducked down and then I heard two more shots. I looked up and the policeman was, he seemed like he kind of stumbled and fell. There was another car that was in front of me, a red Ford, I believe. I didn't know the man, but I guess he was about 25 or 30 and he pulled over. I didn't never see him get out of his car, but when he heard the scare, I guess he was about six cars from them, and he pulled over, and I don't know if he came back there or not. This man was Jack Tatum, who had only seconds earlier driven past Tippett's patrol car. Benavides, sitting in his pickup, watched as the shooter, Lee Oswald, left the scene. He told the Warren Commission, quote, then I seen the man turn and walk back to the sidewalk and go on the sidewalk and he walked maybe five feet and then kind of stalled. He didn't exactly stop and he threw one shell and must have took five or six more steps and threw the other shell up. And then he kind of stepped up to a pretty good trot going around the corner. Now Benavides is only 15 feet from Tippett's patrol car and he got a good look at Oswald. He told the Warren Commission, quote, I remember the back of his head seemed like his hairline was sort of, looked like his hairline was sort of went square instead of tapered off. And he looked like he needed a haircut for about two weeks. His hair didn't taper off. 
It kind of went down and squared off and made his head look flat in back, end quote. Now, Lee Oswald's hair was accurately described by Benavides, who also worked as a barber. Benavides' description of the shooter's hairline is important because Harvey Oswald's hair was not squared off. Harvey Oswald's hairline, as we know from numerous photographs taken at the police station, extended well down his neck and past his collar line, and he didn't need a haircut, as described by Benavides. Benavides was so close to Tippett's body, about 12 to 15 feet from his pickup, that he almost surely saw the man who got out of the police car and approached Tippett's body after the shooting. He then saw the same man return to the police car and back up the police car into the alley. Benavides almost surely saw the policeman, Sergeant Croy, who was left at the scene of the shooting wearing a blue-gray jacket. Benavides, however, dared not report that a police car and two police officers were on site and participated in the Tippett shooting. This may explain why, after picking up empty shell casings discarded by the shooter, that Benavides dared not give those shell casings to Sergeant Croy. For Captain Westbrook, Domingo Benavides posed a serious threat because he could link two Dallas police officers and their squad car to the Tippett murder. Benavides' brother was killed three months later in February 1964, and researchers have wondered if Domingo, and not his brother, was the intended victim. Mrs. Doris Holland had just returned home from her job a few minutes after 1 p.m. when she heard several gunshots. From her second floor bedroom window, she had an excellent view of the murder scene and saw Tippett lying in the street near the left front of his patrol car. Mrs. Holden observed the shooter as he was walking across Virginia Davis's lawn towards Patton Street. Mrs. Holden also noticed a second police car parked in the narrow driveway between the two houses, directly across the street. And that was car 207, occupied by Westbrook and Croy. Tippett's patrol car was parked on 10th Street, directly in front of the narrow driveway, and prevented car 207 from driving onto 10th Street. Mrs. Holden watched as a man, who I believe was Captain Westbrook, get out of the police car and walk over to Tippett's body. The man appeared to observe the bullet wound on Tippett's head and then quickly returned to the police car. If this man was not Captain Westbrook, then who was it? Akita Clemens was sitting on the porch at 327 East 10th, about half a block west and on the opposite side of 10th Street. She told JFK researchers Mark Lane, Shirley Martin, Vince Salandria, George, and Virginia Nash. There were two men involved in the murder of Tippett. She told Mark Lane the shooter was, quote, a short guy and kind of heavy, end quote, who she saw reloading his gun while walking away. She saw the other man, tall and thin, in khaki trousers and a white shirt, motioned to the shooter to go away, go on. The second man then hurried off in a different direction. Clemens said that two days later, a policeman wearing a blue uniform, hat, and carrying a gun told her that it was best if she didn't say anything about the murder of Officer Tippett. He said that she might get hurt if she talked about what she saw. Mrs. Clemens told researcher Shirley Martin, the policeman told her that, quote, 
she might get killed on the way to work. Clemens said, quote, they'll kill people that know something about that. There's liable to be a whole lot of them. There might even be a whole lot of Oswalds and things. You know, you just don't know who you talk to. You just don't know. Now in 1990, a resident of the neighborhood was interviewed by JFK researcher Bill Pulte on the condition of anonymity. This resident said that he heard that another man walked down the driveway and approached Officer Tippett just after the shooting. In January 1968, Playboy magazine interviewed Jim Garrison. In response to the Garrison interview, a reader wrote to Playboy and said, quote, I read Playboy's Garrison interview with perhaps more interest than most readers. I was an eyewitness to the shooting of policeman Tippett in Dallas on the afternoon President Kennedy was murdered. I saw two men, neither of them resembling the pictures I later saw of Lee Harvey Oswald, shoot Tippett and run off in opposite directions. This is identical to what Akita Clemens told researchers. There were at least a half a dozen other people who witnessed this. My wife convinced me that I should say nothing since there were other eyewitnesses. Her advice and my cowardice undoubtedly have prolonged my life, or at least allowed me now to tell the true story. This article was published in Playboy magazine, January 1968, volume 15, number one, page 11. Police car 207 and the two occupants of the car parked between the two houses on a very narrow driveway were only seen by Doris Holen, seen by the man who wrote to Playboy, and likely seen by Domingo Benavides. Police car 207, parked between the two houses, could not be seen by most witnesses to the shooting as shown in the above image. The location of the second police vehicle, parked between the two houses on a very narrow driveway, was no accident. The precise location of this vehicle and the arrival of Westbrook Croy and Lee Oswald at the same time, at the same location, is the best indication that Tippett's murder was pre-planned.